KRCL, Salt Lake City. Welcome to Radioactive, a show for grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives. I'm Laura Jones. Thanks for plugging into your community with me this evening. Coming up on the show, I've got a conversation that I Zoomed earlier this week with Dave John of Ours, Our Unsheltered Relatives, and the Second and Second Coalition that's putting on movie nights for folks to come in out of the cold when temperatures drop below 20 degrees in Salt Lake City. And he was inspired, as well as his, his fellow grassroots advocates, by the work of the Genesis Project in Provo and Pastor Justin Banks will join us in our Zoom conversation as well to hear more about it and maybe some tips and tricks to apply in your own community, to apply in your own uh, religious congregation too. A hydrocarbon highway may threaten historic Nine Mile Canyon. Radioactive is going to pass the microphone to Price City Councilman Lane Miller, who will join us by Zoom. In the studio, Michael Hansen of Nine Mile Canyon Coalition and Kent Williams of the Utah Rock Art Research Association. But we're going to get the show started with rallies and resources. If you go to krcl.org and click on Community Affairs, you'll find a tab for rallies and resources where I work with our volunteers to put some items of interest that we think radioactive listeners will want to know about, uh, want to perhaps support. At the top of this list, I'm starting to aggregate the legislative bill trackers and alert links from different nonprofits working on issues at the 2023 general session of the Utah legislature. So do check that out. And on this list, Utah Governor Spencer Cox delivering the 2023 State of the State Address at 6.30 tonight. I'm sure it'll be archived. You can, you can check it out after you listen to Radioactive. Also started today was the Sundance Film Festival. Be sure to tune in to Radioactive throughout the festival, throughout Slam Dance Festival as well as we bring you updates. Also, we have Sundance and 60 from Eric P. Nelson later this hour, giving you some tidbits on how to do Sundance, including the local lens, where you just need to get yourself a Sundance account, doesn't cost you anything, and then sign up for their screenings for locals that don't cost anything. Coming up on Saturday, Utah Women Run Winter Training, 9 a.m. at Hinckley Institute of Politics. You can sign up for that. It's they got student rates, and if you're looking how to get into politics, you want to run, maybe it's not right just now, but you're thinking about it, this is a way to get some instruction and some insight. And for our first special guests in rallies and resources, you need to know about Let Utah Read, a read-in with the ACLU of Utah, PEN America, and members of the Utah Library community. Joining me in the studio, we have Peter Bromberg, formerly of the City Library, now with Every Library USA. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Good to see you in studio. And then Paisley Rechtal, former State Poet Laureate, is with us. How you doing, Paisley? Great. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And you're also with PEN America, so a lot of great organizations coming together. And I understand there's read-ins across the country that are happening, Peter. Is that what's the case? Well, ours is the biggest and most important. Of course. Uh, yeah, I'm sure there's I'm others happening. Yes. Sure. So on the 25th at the Utah State Capitol, what is it that you're asking folks to join you, Peter? Well, we're asking people to do a number of things. One is just come out um, it's between 3 and 6 and bring a book and just read. This is a celebration of the power of reading, and I think— you know, for many people have a book that has changed their lives. So come on out and then uh, do some reading. And between 4 and 5.15, we have a great lineup of speakers, which we can get into, and okay. some, some great student speakers. And uh, then a chance to just hang out, talk, network, and uh, really demonstrate to the legislature 
uh, how important reading is to Utahns. So is this just general reading? Because what I'm thinking of is the headlines in the news where lawmakers are deciding what's in especially school libraries. So is there any political angle to this? Well, not directly, but obviously we're doing this in the rotunda of the state capitol, right, um, as a demonstration of, of love for reading. And, and the, you know, the opposite side of that coin is in opposition to censorship, which unfortunately is happening in Utah as it's happening across the country right now increasingly. And there's uh, been some comments made from some legislators indicating that there might be some more uh, censorship, particularly of uh, school libraries, but in other areas as well, uh, coming at us this session. So um, we just want to you know, get out there and, and show the legislature, le- legislators how important reading is to Utahns before they take any steps down that path. Paisley, you're with PEN America as well. What's that organization? So PEN America was started basically around um, the turn of last century, and it's an international organization, and it's dedicated to fighting um, for artistic artistic and journalistic freedoms. It's very much uh, devoted to defending the rights of the First Amendment in the United States. PEN America is located in New York City, it's physical uh, locations, but every state has a chapter. I'm one of the co-leaders of Utah's chapter, which we're, we're starting starting to get off the ground. Um, Utah has never really had its own membership, its own chapter before. So we're really excited about this because, you know, Utah is turning into one of the big battleground states in terms of censorship and uh, book banning in the nation. And Penn America is very interested in finding out, you know, what's going on here and uh, can read-ins like ours make a difference to the um, freedom of speech efforts done in other Utah, uh, in other state chapters. I think a lot of it has to do with people being uncomfortable with the history of our, our country and the injustices. Would you agree with that, Paisley? Yes, I would. I mean, the book banning movement, because it is sort of a movement, it really tracks the anti-CRT or the anti-critical race theory movement. What was happening in 2019 and early 2020 was that as people were really anxious about how American history was getting taught in schools and especially interested and worried that now we're starting to talk about um, the the legacy of slavery and the history of people of color in the United States, they wanted to try to legislate against teaching this material in colleges. And they found out that there was a significant amount of pushback actually in state legislatures across the nation. So what happened is that a lot of these same groups realized that they would have much more success if they started labeling books uh, for children in the K through 12 system, pornographic. And pornography is of course a federal um, violation. You can't give pornography to children. And in fact, no one is giving pornography to children, but it's a way of essentially creating a sort of hysteria around these books uh, and having them pulled from the shelves and then being reconsidered by usually panels of some librarians, but mostly, you know, interested parents um, who haven't necessarily been trained in First Amendment free speech rights. So, you know, this is really a movement that's been born out of a larger uh, anti-CRT movement. And it's it's been so successful because, you know, state after state, these people are talking to each other, sharing the books that they should think should be banned um, across these sorts of different districts. And um, parents are starting to react. And Peter, as Mm -hmm. former director of the City Library, I just wanted to ask you this. It seems like in this conversation, librarians, libraries are being presented as uh, places where books are clerked or checked in and out, and that's it. But libraries have a long history of process of how they um, 
take in new books, of how they review complaints, the policies and procedures and committees? Sure, absolutely. Well, I mean, to begin, you know, librarians um, have master's degrees, and that's a, a program where we are trained in, among other things, First Amendment law and collection development. But as public institutions, whether it's the school library or public library, there are policies that are passed, and these policies are passed by uh, boards that are elected or appointed in open public meetings where there's opportunity for public input. So these are, le- this is, these are legitimate, and then li- librarians apply their professional knowledge, including knowledge of law, um, to apply those policies in building collections that will meet the needs of and reflect everyone in the community, whether the community is a student body or, uh, or the public at large in a public library. I always like the numbers on this issue because sometimes folks say, oh, it's just the media talking about a big nothing burger. But Mm -hmm. Paisley and Peter, you gave me some data here that um, 674 banned book titles, 41%, explicitly address LGBTQ plus themes or have protagonists or prominent Mm -hmm. secondary characters who are LGBTQ plus. And that is from the Penn Banned in USA report, June 21 to June 2022, mm-hmm. a year report. So there's, there's real data behind this showing what's happening, Paisley. That's true, and people who are interested can go to Let Utah Read. We link right to the PEN America uh, you know, census on you know, banned books. Basically, we track what books are being banned across the United States, where they tend to be um, getting banned, and we're tracking where they're getting banned in Utah as well. In Utah, for instance, um, we've had book banning taking place in Washington, Davis um, counties, uh, Davis counties in the Alpine School District. That was the one that got the most attention. Um, but, you know, we're finding that, in fact, a very small percentage of Utahns, in fact, only like maybe a couple of people are driving the uh, book banning efforts in some of these areas. And granted, I think there were over 205 books that were labeled as problematic or pornographic and, and pulled. But I think behind 199 of these charges, really only a couple of people, I think they were a couple, literally a, a related couple mm-hmm. uh, from West Valley City doing this. So these these book bans really do not reflect the general will, ni- neither of the ma- vast majority of Utahns, but certainly not, not the vast majority of Americans. But this is taking place because people feel like, you know, they can go to the school boards and complain and get very instant reactions. And there's no one from the, the vast middle or the left that's coming out to, you know, to, to make a, a statement about how we support our libraries and we support the very thoughtful and appropriate process that's already in place. And that's one of the reasons we want to do this read-in on the 25th. We want to get people out there to show legislators just how much we support um, the common sense you know, laws that are already in place and the ways in which um, librarians are already selecting books that are totally appropriate for their communities. And again, this is on Wednesday, the 25th. Starts at 3 o'clock at the Utah Capitol in the Rotunda, Peter? In the Rotunda, that's correct. And who are some of the speakers that we're going to be hearing from on that date? Oh, we have a great lineup, um, and we'll start with Paisley, who uh, will be doing some opening closing remarks and some emceeing. Um, Erica George from the Tanner Humanities, uh, she's the director and also the co-chair of PEN America Utah. We have Lisa Bickmore, our current uh, poet laureate. Uh, Kimberly Johnson, who's a poet and a liter- literature professor at BYU. Um, Erica Sanchez, who is a, 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 an amazing author, has, a, a, among other books, I'm Not Your Perfect Mexican Daughter. More locally, uh, Shannon Hale, who's a New York Times bestseller and Newbery Award winner for her book, Princess Academy. 
Um, and, and some non-author speakers as well. Liz Pitts, who's president and CEO of the LGBTQ plus chamber and has served as the Utah Pride Festival director and a couple of amazing young students, uh, both at the high school. Uh, actually, both of these are high school level students who um, are, are going to have some amazing things to say about the impact on them as, as students and as young people preparing for uh, you know, a journey in life here. Should I bring a book? I'm prepared to Bring read a book. in between speakers. Bring a book. We'll, we'll have <laughs> books for those who show up empty-handed, but it is a BYOB event. <laughs> well, Peter Bromberg and Paisley, Paisley Rechtal, thank you so much for your time and all you're doing in the community on this issue. Thank you. All right. When we come back, and I'll check, I'll check the note show, <laughs> check the show notes, and I'll put a link to the read-in in there for folks. Okay. Sounds great. All right. To get us from here to there, I got a little Bo Diddley for you. You can't judge a book by its cover. KRCL. Nurture the Creative Mind is an Ogden nonprofit that empowers and establishes self-value in youth through the arts while developing marketable skills. Learn more about Nurture's art classes and workshops by visiting nurturethecreativemind.org. Support for Radioactive on KRCL comes from Mark Miller Subaru and the Subaru Share the Love event, a partnership with local charities in delivering hope this holiday season. Learn more and info on how to get involved at markmillersubaru.com. This is Radioactive, and I'm Laura Jones. Still to come, we're going to talk about movie nights in downtown Salt Lake, as well as Provo, grassroots groups, church groups, opening their doors to help folks when temperatures drop below 20 degrees. Stick around. We'll talk with Dave John of Ours, Our Unsheltered Relatives, and Genesis Project Provo's Pastor Justin Banks. That's on the way. All right, now, though, we're going to go to Nine Mile Canyon, and what folks are saying is a hydrocarbon highway that threatens the historic canyon that's full of indigenous rock art and We want to find out more about this, what's going on and why. I feel like when I was a kid, I was hearing about all of this. And here we are again. Joining me by Zoom, we have from Price City Council, Lane Miller is joining us. Hey, Lane, how you doing? Hi, Laura. Very good. How are you? Doing well. Thanks for getting on the Zoom with us. And in studio, we have with us from the Utah Rock Art Research Association, Kent Williams. Hey, Kent. Hey, Laura. Thanks for being here. Thank you. And then we also have in studio with us Michael Hansen from the Nine Mile Canyon Coalition. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, Lane, I wanted to start with you as a city councilman. What is the situation? I feel like it just, and I think uh, Michael used this out in the lobby before we started. It's a zombie issue. It just keeps coming back, Lane. It does. You you just think that it's died and gone away and and, and it's back. I, I read a letter from 2015 that the Bureau of Land Management wrote, and it was about this exact same thing. And that was back in 2015. So the Bureau of Land Management is considering a proposal by Duchesne County to construct what, uh, in this press release you sent me, <laughs> you call a hydrocarbon highway through Gate Canyon connecting the Uinta Basin to Nine Mile Canyon. Lane, what's the intent here as far as you can ascertain? Well, you never know when when politicians say something. I can speak that from, from the inside. <laughs> this, this appears to be a proposal to uh, take oil hauling semis from the UN Basin down Gate Canyon into Nine Mile, then through Nine Mile Canyon to uh, re- 
excuse me, railroad tracks and oil storage tanks in Wellington. Wow, this uh, sounds and That's been going on for quite a while, but uh -huh. this, this is a new proposal, a new route for them to take. And Michael, in the press release you all sent, you, you're quoted as saying that no single project would do more to destroy our cultural heritage in the state of Utah than the approval of the so-called hydrocarbon highway, the equivalent of putting oil tanker traffic through the middle of Temple Square or the Louvre. That's fighting words. Well, uh, it's a fighting proposal. I, I, it should be noted that the term hydrocarbon highway is not our term. Mm -hmm. It was, uh, that's how, how it was referred to by the Senate sponsor of a bill a year ago, Senator Winterton from Duchesne, when he was attempting to get, uh, uh, use $20 million of uh, community impact board funds to uh, build this highway. And he referred to it as a hydrocarbon highway. Okay. Uh, and it fits because no matter what anyone says that it's for safety or it's for you know uh, tourism the primary purpose of this is to move hydrocarbon uh waxy you crude. went to waxy crude mm -hmm. from the uinta basin to wellington to put on railroad cars to then ship to refinery facilities in north salt lake is this tied to the inland port up here? Is this to get it over to where that uh, new satellite might be? No, it's. Uh, I think it's primarily tied to the fact that the uh, refinery facilities in North Salt Lake are where they want to take it to have it refined. All right. So, uh, Lane, you're also a tour guide as well as a Price City Councilman. So, tourism versus waxy crude. What's what? Is, what is your hopes or fears? Well, my fears are oil tankers and tourists don't mix mm -hmm. nine mile we refer to nine mile as an out outdoor museum because it's one of the few places where you can go spend a day uh you can see um ruins you can see rock art and even even with a a paved road it's one of the few places where you'll round a corner and find uh, a sedan parked in the middle of the road with all four doors open and kids and mom and dad out, out looking at petroglyphs and pictographs. And, you know, that, that kind of activity just doesn't mix with, uh, with semi-tankers. It's, it's that simple. And speaking of semi-tankers, if completed, it's anticipated there would be one oil tanker every three minutes through Nine Mile Canyon. That's a lot of traffic that's not tourists. Yes, it is. That's and look at the impact. Oh, go ahead, Mike. Well, I was just going to say that calculation is based on if they if they go twenty four hours a day. If, however, they only go through during daylight hours because of the wildlife in Nine Mile Canyon, um, uh, there's always wildlife on the road. There's always also cattle on the road in Nine Mile Canyon. So, if they only go during daylight hours, it would be one semi-truck every one to two minutes. Wow, just every one to two minutes. All right, Kent, we gotta get you in here from the Utah Rock Art Research Association, a group that you're president of. Tell us a little bit more about the association and and uh, also paint a picture of Nine Mile for folks that might not know of it. Sure, well, URARA is an all-volunteer organization. We have about 450 members right now, and we are 
our, our mission is to increase awareness of rock art, um, the, you know, the beauty, the uniqueness of it, and do what we can to help protect it. All right. So I think a lot of folks may conjure up these images of um, the panels and the remnants. Uh, we're talking Fremont and Ute cultures, the world's longest art gallery, Nine Miles been called. What's your favorite piece of art down there? Oh, that's that's a tough one. I mean, there's just so many of them. Well, and it's, it's, you know, the canyon itself is, is, is beautiful. I mean, we're lucky. We're blessed in Utah to have many such places um, remote. You know, there's some agriculture, there's some homesteading, farmsteading that's happened in the canyons, but not all of them have such an amazing array of rock art and have a road that makes it accessible mm -hmm. for people to visit. But once you, you know, and Nine Mile is a misnomer, it's more like 48 miles. So it's a long winding drove from Wellington to get into the canyon and you know, like I said, it's just beautiful. Pinion Jupiter on one side, um, conifers on the other. You just keep going and going. And then at some point, you'll notice, um, you know, there's some turnoffs right now where you can pull off the road and where the first panels start. So, you know, it's just one after the other. There are panels all along the road. Um, I like the Great Hunt panel. That's a famous one that's further down the road near um, Cottonwood Canyon, it's called. But, you know, there, there are many, many. And I re really encourage your listeners to, you know, to go out and see for themselves. Absolutely. We'll put links in show notes so folks can, can check it out. There is a public comment period going on right now, correct, Lane? Yes, that's true. That's, that's for the scoping process. So you, you don't have too long to comment. And then once they actually start an assessment, there'll be um, another public comment period. Um, so now's your now's your chance to get involved, voice your opinion. Uh, there are a few things that I get really, really excited about. Rock art is one of my passions. I've been involved with rock art for, for over 40 years. Uh, I've been conducting public tours through the local re recreation department for, for 20 years. I've taken people from all over the country into Nine Mile. One of the stories I like to tell is I did one trip where we had more people from downtown Manhattan than I did Carbon County. That's and a good one. Come all, people come from all over the country to see it. And it's, it's in our own backyard. Yeah. Well, you also have a unique you're in a unique position, I should say, as a, a city councilman. You know, this is, we're talking increased waxy crude extraction. That's jobs down in that part of Utah, isn't it? It sure it is. And you know, Carbon County over the last ten years has has been really hurt by in jobs and economic viability uh, by the shutting down of the power plants and 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 closing of the coal mines. And so we, we need the economic help. And so I, I need to remember that as I talk about this. Um, Carbon County over the last five or six years has spent a lot of money in Nine Mile Canyon to make sure that the visitors can see petroglyphs, they, they can learn a little bit about them, 
and and they can be safe when they're there. So it's almost like if this comes through, uh, we're we're damaging the very thing that we're depending on for our our, our future survival. So it's a it's a tough straddle for me, to be honest with you. Yeah. So we're talking more than 10,000 images etched onto the walls in Nine Mile Canyon. And because of this wealth down there, it is um, eligible for listing on the National Register of Historic Places. I'm shocked that we haven't been able to have that happen first, but maybe this is part of the political gamesmanship with, with this road as well, too. What do you think, Michael? Um, there are over 300 sites that are already listed with the National Trust for historic preservation. There are over 300 more that are being submitted as we speak. Um, Some of us want to have the whole canyon declared a national historic district. Um, Unfortunately, the politics in Carbon County and Duchesne County have kind of kept that from happening, but some of us um, are all for that. Um, This was one of the first scenic byways in the whole in the United States, uh, declared by uh, the Bureau of Land Management in 1991, and now we're going to turn it into um, a, a thoroughfare for industry. Well, and Kent, as president of the uh, Utah Rock Art Research Association, what can you tell us about this kind of traffic level and its impact on the the art? We're talking a lot of diesel fumes. We're talking a lot of dust and dirt, and just wear and tear. Yeah, well, I think that was the reason the road was paved in the first place, um, to accommodate or mitigate the traffic for the um, oil and gas development, what, 20 years ago? If the if this proposal goes through and there's an increase in traffic, there's no way that that current road in Nine Mile is going to support that sort of traffic. So we think that it's going to have to be um, reconstructed, modified, you know, um, earthworks, potentially um, excavation. So any of the dust that's kicked up from that with wind can abrade the panels, especially the pictograph or the painted panels. Um, Potentially the vibration from um, road machines, right? That sort of construction can cause um, the rock faces that the panels are on to crack, spall, and fall off. So there's a lot of potential threat from any additional construction. And for that volume of traffic, it's hard to believe that, you know, additional construction isn't going to have to happen. Aside from this this road, and again, public comment uh, in this initial phase being taken through February 8th of this year, I'll put a link in the show notes so you can check it out, folks. But aside from that threat, what else, what other challenges do you see as uh, given your position with URA that the preservation of the, these artifacts face? I mean, we read occasionally about vandalism, about folks trying to steal them. Yeah, it, it, unfortunately, I mean, that happens. And I, I think, and it's a, it's a fine line, right? I mean, we're trying to increase awareness and how do you do that? By, Get more people down there. Right. But if, if people aren't um, made aware of, of just the innocent impact they have, you know, coming up close and touching the panel. And, yeah, you want to touch know, it. It's, know, out in the, it's out in the open, so why can't I touch it? So there's, there's a lot of stewardship or, you know, um, outreach for responsible 
visitation, and that's where we, that's where we try to get involved with. And I believe you have an annual conference that's coming up in October. We do. It's a symposium. Last year was in Vernal. The next one is going to be in Price in in October. You currently you need to be a member, you know, so you can check us out and and, and join your R if you'd like. It's a great symposium. It's we're not a, a formal professional research organization. That isn't our title. So we're kind of open to avocationalists. We do get, you know, professionals uh, present for us as well, some professionals and members. But for the most part, we're just people that are passionate about rock art, and we want to protect it. Get involved. Absolutely. All right, and Nine Mile uh, Canyon Coalition. Tell me a little bit more about that, Michael, and how people can get engaged. Um, the Nine Mile Canyon Coalition was formed in approximately 1990 for the purpose of um, uh public education and preservation of the rock art and the artifacts in Nine Mile Canyon. Um, it's a voluntary organization. We don't have any paid employees. Um, and, and our primary focus is to bring awareness of the canyon to the public. Every fall uh, in September, we have a stewardship day where we have trained archeologists at numerous sites in the, va- uh, in the canyon. Uh, explaining what the rock art is and explaining how uh, you treat the rock art. You don't crawl on it. You don't crawl on the ruins. You don't touch the rock art. And, and just teaching good stewardship practices to the public. We believe that if people uh, know about the canyon, love the artwork, then when we ha- and, and are good stewards of the artwork, then when we have issues like this road come up, uh, we have a ready-made group of people who will rally around and tell their legislators, tell the Bureau of Land Management, tell Duchesne County uh, that this is not what they want to see in Nine Mile Canyon or Gate Canyon. We focused on Gate, but uh, Nine Mile Canyon Road was built by the uh, black soldiers that were stationed in Fort Duchesne. It's a historic road. That road is going to be destroyed with this improvement project. Uh, The people that worked on the road have put axle grease signatures on the rock walls, many of which are going to be destroyed uh, if this Gate Canyon proposal goes through. So it's not simply Nine Mile. It's also Gate Canyon. They're going to be fills 180 feet deep in places in Gate Canyon. You won't even know Gate Canyon is there if this project goes through. At the same time, uh, over the course of the pandemic, we've seen more and more people getting out into the great outdoors, and I'm guessing Nine Mile has seen a lot more folks down there, Kent? I would assume so. I don't, you know, have access to the numbers, and um, but you know, maybe Lane or, or so Mike would have. Yeah, Lane, what do you what do you think about that? Has uh, have you definitely seen an increase over the last couple of years as more people have been getting outdoors and feeling safer there doing it? Sure, visitation during the pandemic uh, increased. Um, I I don't know if anybody knows for sure how much, but exponentially, uh, and. And it continues to today. It doesn't matter what day of the week I go in there. I always see lots of cars, uh, families, people doing research, people just enjoying the outdoors. I've worked in the outdoors for years, and I came to the conclusion a a long time ago, there's something magical about the outdoors. 
especially when it comes to young boys. That's the group that I worked with for years. And uh, Nine Mile is one of those places where you can go enjoy the fresh air. It's absolutely gorgeous. And you can learn. It's like I, like I call it, it, it's an outdoor museum where you can go enjoy yourself and learn a lot. It's really a fabulous place. Well, thank you all three for talking about this with me, for coming in, for joining us on Zoom. I'll be sure to put all the links in the show notes so folks can check it out and weigh in on this hydrocarbon highway that's threatening historic Nine Mile Canyon. Thank you so much, all of you. Thank you. When thank we you. Come Thanks, back, Laura. Yeah, Thanks, absolutely. you guys. Good seeing you. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about movie night. This is KRCL's Sundance in 60, your guide to 2023's Sundance Film Festival. The festival kicks off today, so if you want to get involved, be sure to register your account and download the app right now for access to a variety of locals-only screenings, accessing the waitlist, and the full schedule of films and events throughout the fest. If a film you want to see is already sold out, give the waitlist a shot. All it takes is joining the waitlist through the app two hours prior to the screening time. Easy. Also, the Local Lens program is back, offering no ticket needed films to Utah locals. This year's choices are Little Richard, I Am Everything, and the film Aliens Abducted My Parents and Now I Feel Kinda Left Out, shot in Utah and directed by Utah filmmaker Jake Von Wagener. The Local Lens program is no ticket needed, but you do need to register for a ticket with your account. So, if you want a Sundance, here's your to-do list. Download the app, create an account, follow at KRCL Radio on Facebook and Instagram, and enjoy the festival. Yeah, do check in. We uh, are recording some interviews, working on something maybe with Moby for a punk rock vegan movie at Slamdance, Indigo Girls documentary, the Little Richard documentary. Do check back, krcl.org, often our social media as our team uh, goes about the festival and gathers some great conversations for you. I'm Laura Jones. You're listening to Radioactive. And to conclude our, our show this evening, I had the opportunity to, do, to Zoom with a couple of folks about movie nights in Salt Lake City and Provo when temperatures dip below 20 degrees and help folks living on the streets who otherwise don't have shelter options. Let's find out more and pass that microphone. Uh, hello. My name's uh, Dave John. Uh, or should I say good evening, evening relatives. <laughs> yeah, my name's Dave John. Um, I'm uh, Dene and Tewa uh, from Arizona and New Mexico. Um, also, I'm with a group called Ours, Our Own Shelter Relatives, uh, with another group called Pandos. And also, we just started a new coalition, Second and Second Coalition. Going to hear all about that. Hello, Pastor Banks. Please introduce yourself to our listeners tonight. Yeah, my name is Justin Banks. I'm the pastor of the Genesis Project in Provo, Utah been down there. We've had the church there for about nine years now. Nine years. And for at least the last seven or so, you've been doing movie nights, which gave inspiration to Dave and some activists up here to do the same on cold nights when it drops below 20 degrees for our unsheltered relatives, Dave. And can you give us a brief update on the movie night so far in Salt Lake, Dave, and this new coalition that's sprung up? Uh, yeah, we're, <clears throat> uh, we're going to be opening up uh Friday, Saturday, and Sunday uh, this week, uh, the temperatures. Uh, yeah, because our baseline is when the temperature drops below below 20 degrees, yeah, the first United Methodist Church will open up their doors and 
yeah, with other groups in the Salt Lake community uh, come together to volunteer to make this possible. And that's at Second and Second First United Methodist Church, Pastor A.J. Bush and company over there doing what uh, government and the current shelter system doesn't seem able to do. And while there's a whole conversation around that, what I wanted to focus on was the, the good works that your organization and its inspiration, Genesis Project and Provo, have been doing. So, Pastor Banks, can you take us back seven years? I'm not sure if you were there in the, in the first year that Genesis decided to open its doors when temperature dropped below uh, 20 degrees in a county, in a city that does not permit actually prohibits homeless shelters. Yeah, well, we actually planted the church there nine years ago. And after our second year, we, you know, being where we are in East Bay, it's, it's between Food and Care Coalition and Community Action, which are some great organizations down there that do a lot of great work with, with homelessness and people, low-income, you know, individuals and families. But we had this, man, a daily march of homeless people past our building every single day going to eat, you know, three meals a day at the Food and Care Coalition. And, you know, Utah weathers, you know, Utah winters, it just gets harsh out there. And so the first year, we didn't really know our place. We were kind of figuring everything out. Second year, uh, we started handing out just tons of blankets and 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 uh, sleeping bags, coats, you know, things like that, just to make sure people were warm. And about halfway, I guess it was probably in January of that year, um, man, it was tough. I, I had to close my doors. I had to, you know, go home at night to my warm bed and leave all of our friends because we had created such a great relationship with the homeless community there. And I had to leave all our friends and family on the street. And it was very difficult. We had lost, um, I remember losing one person that year specifically. And I just, I hated it. Just couldn't stand, you know, being home and leaving them on the street. So I was a part of a, uh, the continuum of care there in, in Utah County. Found out that they weren't any, there weren't any homeless shelters, couldn't send anybody anywhere. And so just one day I was thinking about, well, you know, I, I don't want to be a shelter per se, but I can't leave people in the streets. So why don't we just have, show movies all night. Let's just have a movie night and invite all of our homeless friends over and we'll just open at eight o'clock, show, you know, movies all night and, uh, till eight o'clock in the morning and, and see how it goes. And so had a couple of guys that joined with me back then. And uh, we opened our first movie night and it was really simple. I think we only had like 11 or 12 people that night, the first night. Um, but we did, we just, you know, had a couple of microwaves with some cup of noodles and some, you know, water and hot chocolate, things like that. And just, uh, played movies all night. And it was great. It, it honestly, it was easy. It was so simple once we started doing it. And I mean, our buildings in the, in the perfect location where everybody is. And so over the, over the next, you know, you know, uh, seven years now, um, it's just grown it, then we were averaging, we've been averaging this year, probably 35 to 40 people every night. Uh, people, <laughs> it's interesting. People in Provo say that there's, there aren't any homeless people down here. And I'm like, what are you talking about? We have, they're everywhere. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and honestly, we haven't had any pushback. We've had a lot of great, um, support with community as well as the, the police, you know, they'll actually bring people down when we tell them what, you know, what, when the movie nights are, we or we, you know. Also partner with all the other organizations there to fill the gaps, do things like that. But uh, that's how it started. And and it's honestly been, it's, it's an easy thing. It really like, is not hard. 
Yeah, it sounds like the police are are looking for an option when they encounter people down there in Provo, because as I said earlier, uh, homeless shelters are not an authorized use according to statute in the county or in the city. Um, but the police know that too, so they're it's kind of a wink, wink, nudge, nudge because they yeah. want people somewhere warm and safe too. Yes, they do. Well, the Provo a couple of years ago actually made it illegal to camp inside city limits, so they will actually ticket people that that set up camps and stuff. Now, obviously, they don't enforce that. You know, they don't enforce that too strictly, too harshly. They'll just basically ask people to move and do things like that. But uh, yeah, Provo actually made a made a statute that they can't even do that. Which has been found in uh, in the courts unconstitutional up here in Salt Lake City. I can't imagine that yeah. Provo somehow found a magic way to write the the, the statute. Yeah. So hey, Provo. Exactly. <laughs> right. And you know the community wants to do something. At the same time, we're afraid of a population. Sure. That, there, but for the grace of God, and a bad accident, a bad medical issue, a loss of a job, go so many of us. Right. Right. So, so Pastor in. You know, seven years ago when you started opening your doors for movie night there at Genesis, Genesis Project in, in Provo, how did the congregation react? How did the community react? And tell us some of the challenges, the hurdles that you've overcome in those seven years to keep doing this. In fact, you're going to do it again Thursday and Friday and then Sunday and Monday as temperatures are expected to drop below 20 degrees. You know, we had been talking to our church and it was, like I said, even smaller then, just about our heart, our vision. I, I took a trip to Calcutta, India back in 2009, and we worked with people in the street, Mother Teresa's mission, um, and it just it just it just destroyed me. And I came back to the United States, and I was like, I just can't do normal church anymore. I can't just go to the go and do music and and say hello and hug, hug some necks and then go home. We have to, you know, reach out and be the love of God to people. And so that's what a kind of that's what our church became. And that was the vision of our church in the beginning, because that's what Genesis projects do, you know, across the country. And so, you know, presenting this to the congregation, it just fit. Our people were already ready. There were people there that, you know, were, were on board uh, right away. Actually, most of our people were, because we had already, we already served breakfast on Sunday mornings anyway, because food and character doesn't serve on Sundays. So we picked up that, you know, picked up that on Sunday morning. So we already had, we already had exposure to that. People, more and more people had more, you know, exposure to homelessness and, and helping people. So doing that, it really wasn't that difficult. I think the biggest challenge, uh, man, the biggest challenge obviously is, uh, resources. Um, we're a, like I said, a small church and, you know, running furnaces all night long in a steel metal building, warehouse building downtown. It's not, it's not, easy, but, but we've been taken care of. I mean, it's, God's always been, you know, provided for us there. Um, but even learning people, knowing people, getting people to trust us, I think that's a big, the biggest challenge. Dave also knows this. I mean, this idea of when you get into the community, you get to know people first, you build those relationships and then they're willing to just give their life to you in a sense, you know, hand themselves over, trust you as well. So being able to go into the community there and build those relationships, you know, I'd go outside and just sit down and talk with people and we'd, you know, shoot the breeze about things. Then basically the movie nights helped us really get into the community even even tighter. And so that's been that was probably the biggest challenge. Um but over over the over the years, um, there's little challenges, cleanup and, you know, mental illness. You have different things that happen while you're, you know, overnight during the movie nights, things like that. But but overall, um there really hasn't been any giant challenges. We kind of face each challenge one at a time and, and been able to overcome different things and figure it out. 
I mean, we, people want us to do more things and I'm like, well, this is all we can do. And we do, you know, we just try to do it as, as good as we can. You know what I'm saying? Um, there's always that, well, can you do this? Can you do that? Well, this is what we do. And I think now, now that we're, we've been doing it for so long, people are used to how it works and what happens. Community, you know, is on board with it, uh, as well. Um, what was the third question you asked? Just the hurdles and challenges um, and maybe some advice for other communities considering this right. where they see see a need. Because if love were enough, then we would have this problem dialed in yeah. and down and off. Um, but like you said, mental illness, folks that are out on the streets when these temperatures are that extreme are the shelter resistant for a variety yeah. of right. reasons. So the population, have you seen it change? Have you seen people move through homelessness over these seven years? Or is this a, a set population down in your area? Oh, yeah. Transitional transition is, is has been, that's always a part of homelessness. You see people move around different places. However, I think our goal and what I've discovered over the years is people just need to be treated like human beings, right? Uh, they need to be shown value. I mean, I could tell you stories, uh, you know, there was this one lady, um, people call her Mama Bear, and I had this, all these tents donated to me, you know, early on, and I gave all these tents out one year. This big tent city blew up over in Provo, and you know how it works. It it has attracted everybody, you know, and their mom and their dogs, right? And so one one day, uh, there was a a person who went into her tent, stole a hatchet, and a drug deal gone bad, killed another gentleman. Um, they, the police came in, you know, tore out the whole place. Well, we just consistently were in their lives and Mother Mama Bear's life. And so we just loved on her and helped her and was there for her every week and fed her and clothed her, whatever we could do. Once you show them value and love them individually, they begin to think differently about themselves. They can transition out of that self, you know, uh, survival mode. She's now in her own apartment. She's able to get social security. She she has a, a minivan now. She picks up people to go to to you know meetings and things. She's she's doing well. Um, I got a call last week from another gentleman who was one of, our, one of our early homeless guys, and now he lives in another city here in Provo. Married, has a child, has a good job. Uh, it does work. Now, obviously, you're gonna have people that can't operate in just like normal quote quote normal society, right? Because of mental illness. And they're burnt out because of drugs or things like that. However, we love everybody. And then sometimes those that can, their mentality, they change, they can change how they think, begin to believe in themselves again and start seeing and going to the resources that are right there. Because there's some that can fit. They just don't believe that they can because of their past and how they feel about themselves. And now they believe in themselves and start to begin to fit in those, those things, those services that help them get out of that what that part of their life into another part of their life. Yeah. The reality is what all we have, what we're going to always have them with us. Jesus said that, right? They I was just going to say, there's that scripture. So what is yeah. the call? Because yeah. this is, we, I think we want to fix a problem, be done with it, move on. <laughs> but this is, uh, so, this speaks to something yeah. more fundamental about the human experience mm-hmm. and um, what many of us struggle with in trying to find quote unquote normal or success. Yeah. Well, and that's that's the truth. The idea that we can fix this and move on is, okay, it's utopian idealism that doesn't work. It, it's not going to work. It's not going to happen. It never has throughout history. You're always going to have a class of people, and I, I hate to use that word class, but you know what I'm talking about. 
have a group of people that just cannot mentally operate because of their past wounds, problems, uh, you know, maybe they had, they went to abuse or whatever it may be. They've been pushed out of their home. Uh, you know, they, they don't, and they can't operate in that normal society, quote, quote, right? They, they, maybe they'll get housing, right? I've seen this happen so many times. They'll get housing, you know, but yet they, they feel like they owe the people in the street something. So they let them get into their house and they lose the house or they get into their housing. And, you know, it's well, there's so many rules when it comes to that. Uh, there weren't enough mental health resources wrapped around that person. So therefore they just couldn't handle the housing and they just vacated. I mean, you have all kinds of situations like that. People say, well, well, housing first, housing first. Yes. Housing and, first then first. and then what? And then what is my question? And if you don't have the mental health resources wrapped around it, if you don't have the healthcare resources wrapped around it, if you don't have people there on site, and I hate this, but it has to happen, guiding those people through boundaries and, you know, with supervision per se. Um, and again, some people can't operate in that. There was one guy. You know, I always ask him, why don't you just, he could operate. He could have gotten to a house, you know. He's like, I don't want to live in that structure. I don't want to live, you know, under the, the the watchful eye of that camera that's down the street, you know, watching me. So, I mean, I get that. I mean, but that's who he is. And so, so what do we do there? Well, we then we just feed them and we clothe them and we give them a, a place where they feel like a family and feel loved. And if that's the way they live for the rest of their life and they die on the street, well, then they, they will have passed away knowing that somebody cares about them and that there's a part, you know, they're a part of a thing. And that's that's what our goal is. That's who we are. And that's what we want to do. Well, and that's where Genesis Project and the Second and Second Coalition are part of our social safety net. Um, and the thought that this shouldn't have to be in churches. Well, perhaps churches are most uniquely suited to do this work as uh, a, a man of religion. Um, do you see it that way? That there's there's not an end to this type of approach. It's something that is part of what Genesis Project does. Yes. Well, first of all, you have to. Not all churches are are meant to do this because there the homelessness is in one certain area of the city where the services are. Uh, so those, as far as the churches in that area, um, like the Methodist Church, you know, First Methodist Church, uh, just like oh wait, we can do this too. Um, but you you meet the need that's around you. If your if your need is maybe you have a Title One school next to your house or something in your area, your church, and then you can reach out to that Title One school, whatever that need is, you know, obviously, churches, yeah, they are suited to this because we have auditoriums, we have you know gymnasiums, we have things like that that are already pre-installed in some of these places in some of these churches, and so it's easier that way. And honestly, inside of a church, you have people that have should have a heart for other people, right? It's about loving God, loving other people, right? So therefore, if, you, if that love is a part of who you are. Then we do it with two not two people every night. That's all we have. Because our, our doors, it's easy. It's an easy building in and out. You know, I understand, you know, the the church downtown. I mean, they've got to have more security because of the different areas of the church and things. But in our church, it fits. So we have two people every night. So any church can figure out how they if we had, you know, every church downtown Salt Lake, every church here in Provo, downtown, open their doors for two nights a week. Okay, maybe two nights a month. We still could open the doors almost every night of the week. And have those places have people take care of. Now, should there be emergency shelters and warming centers during the wintertime from November to February? Absolutely. And the state can do that. It's not that hard. It's not that difficult. It doesn't take a lot of resources. And it comes now, around every winter. Exactly. <laughs> no, like yes. we know it's coming. And there's plenty of people in the community that want to give. They just don't know how. 
And so I'm sure we could figure out a way for volunteers to go and, and sit in those warming centers or, or whatever it may be. We could find some volunteers, I'm sure, in town that would be able to do that. Reach out, get some people to reach out to churches. Um, here in Provo, I'll be honest with you, Elias Church, they volunteer for everything and anything you want them to volunteer for because that's part of who they are. That's part of their culture. And so it's very, in those churches, that, that's the way it is all across Salt Lake and, and everywhere. As far as churches, there are people there that will volunteer because they just need a place, they want a place to serve and you get an opportunity, they'll do it. And so I think there's plenty of, there's plenty of ways to, to, to face this and to save people because that's really what it is in the winter wintertime, saving people, keeping saving. people alive. Yeah. That's what it's and about. That, and that's what we really need is more doors to open up. Um, yeah, one thing that I seen too, uh, there were four unsheltered relatives that passed away in Provo up here in Salt Lake. Uh, the mayor, you know, she's claiming five, but total for who we deal with, boundaries don't count. So the body count is at nine and that's other bodies in different cities. So, Dave, the uh, Second and Second Coalition has come together as a result of being inspired by the Genesis Project movie night. And you're going to be open at the uh, uh, Methodist Church there on Second and Second in downtown Salt Lake Thursday and Friday night and Sunday and Monday. But what are the broader aims of the coalition? Is it to raise this awareness, to raise this alarm? Oh, yeah. Oh, also, too, a big shout out to you, Justin. I mean, if it wasn't for your project that you had and i mean yeah this this uh coalition wouldn't be existing and like you know our first night you know we only got maybe 37 people but the rest of the nights we've almost always well we were at capacity or either to it and our capacity for the church is 85 people and so well it's it's sad that even after that 85, what we've been doing also is getting numbers to the other shelters. So when we're at capacity, we can call the other shelters and we can transport them over there. So that's good. So we know when they're full. And how can folks get in touch with ours, our unsheltered relatives and the Second and Second Coalition, Dave? Yeah, you can go to uh, the Facebook. Uh, we have uh, ours, our unsheltered relatives. And also our website. Uh, I kind of need to start doing some updating on that. Also on second and second, uh, we have a flyer on Facebook and also a page, uh, second and second coalition. Uh, also too, on the nights we're open, uh, we do need volunteers. It's nice that we get other churches, uh, different groups uh, to help volunteer. And also we're planning on doing uh, dinners. Uh, so if any group or anybody's interested in, you know, uh, doing a dinner uh, for the nights we are open, uh, we we're trying to start a rotating list, you know, so that way we can inform them. Uh, you can also go to the Second and Second Coalition page and find more details. Wow. Great. I will put that in the show notes. And just to clarify, I met I mixed up the organizations and what dates you're open. So Second and Second Coalition uh, in downtown Salt Lake, it's Friday, Saturday, Sunday this weekend. And then the Genesis Project with Pastor Justin Banks and his congregation is Thursday and Friday this week 
and Sunday and Monday this uh, weekend into next week. And Pastor, what's the website or socials where folks can get in touch with Genesis Project about the work you do? Yeah, Genesis Provo is our Facebook page, Genesis Provo. And then uh, we also have a website, genesisprovo.com. Sorry, my bad. It's been a little bit since I've been on our website. But yeah, genesisprovo.com or Genesis Provo on our Facebook page. We run mostly through our Facebook page because it's easier to just do social media and connect with people that way. That's our best way of doing things. But yeah. And that's Pastor Justin Banks of Genesis Project in Provo and Dave John of Ours, Our Unsheltered Relatives. Check tonight's show notes for links to both organizations. And if you are so inclined, check them out and offer your time and your talents in, in serving folks who have no place to go when it falls below 20 degrees. And maybe get your friends, your family, your civic group, your church group to go down and volunteer, maybe cook some food, talk to folks, and uh, help out on this issue. See it firsthand, but also be of service. I'm Laura Jones, and that is our show coming up at 7 o'clock. It is Democracy Now! And uh, Thursday night, Psych Out with DJ Mike at 8 o'clock. And then at 10.30, Rich checking in for Gianni on the Dirty Boulevard. Then Rich doing his own show, I Don't Sound Like Nobody, at 1 a.m. At 3 a.m., Jolene serves up her illustrated blues. And then John Florence getting your weekend started with a brand new day at 6 a.m. Questions, comments, suggestions, you can email radioactive at krcl.org. If there's someone you'd like us to pass the mic to, either in the studio or have us go track them down, I'd love to hear from you. Put a bunch of details in there. If you can uh, do a voice memo, something we can share on the radio, I'd love that as well. Tomorrow night, it's Punk Rock Farmer Friday. Al is back in studio with more true tales from the agri-hood, including the Utah Farm and Food Conference that took place last weekend. He's got some stories to share. Folks from the Green Urban Lunchbox are going to stop by as well. More tree tips because, you know, pruning season is coming up here. Dino Fest at the Natural History Museum of Utah, Dark Sky Workshop at Red Butte Garden, Skywatcher Leo T, and fresh homegrown music from the Gontex. That's Punk Rock Farmer Friday, radioactive, tomorrow night, 6 o'clock, right here on KRCL. Have a great night. KRCL 90.9 FM, HD1, Salt Lake City, Ogden, Provo, 96.7 FM in Park City, and on the web at krcl.org. 90.9 FM, KRCL's funding comes from individual listeners like you, as well as businesses, corporations, and foundations. KRCL has an open meeting policy. The station holds open board of trustee and community advisory board meetings. You may view KRCL's yearly financial report, audited financial statements, EEO reports, and meeting schedule on our website at krcl.org.